Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky coming to you from the AJT Highlights edition for August of 2022. Join with me today is, as always, Roz Mannon, and we have one of our editorial fellows, Dr. Hirsch Trebetti, just finishing up his uh, transplant hepatology fellowship at Beth Israel, ready to take a job as a transplant hepatologist at Cedar Sinai. And so, as always, let me go through the table of contents. We've got a really nice mixture of papers. We have five to discuss on this podcast. Uh, the first two will be discussed by uh, Dr. Trevetti. First one is entitled COVID-19 and Transplantation Data Censoring by Subramanian et al. And the second one is Quantifying Excess Deaths Among Solid Organ Transplant Recipients in the COVID-19 Era by Massey et al. Then I will be presenting a paper on pancreas transplant entitled Post-Pancreatic Transplant Enteric Leaks, the Role of Salvage Operation by Fleetwood et al. And then Roz will finish us off with two papers, uh, the first being Cancer Risk in Living Kidney Donors by Engels et al. with a paired editorial. And then finally, Heart Transplantation Across Preformed Donor-Specific Antibody Barriers using a perioperative desensitization protocol by summer at all. So uh, a nice mixture here. And uh, without further ado, Hirsch, uh, welcome. Uh, glad to have you. And uh, let's get started on, on your reviews. Thank you uh, very much for having me here today. I'm going to uh, first off speak about this uh, commentary by Subramanian Mittal um, named COVID-19 and Transplantation Data Censoring. So as we all know, COVID-19 uh, infection has resulted in nearly 75 million cases in the U.S. and almost 900,000 deaths. It has uh, dramatically strained the environment socioeconomically and has placed undue burden in the healthcare system as a whole. However, patients who are uh, recipients of organ transplants on immunosuppression protocols are particularly disadvantaged. And at the start of the COVID-19 surge in March 2020, the SRTR had chosen a data censoring black hole period that ranged from March 12th to June 12th of 2020 for reporting transplant outcomes as the immediate effect of the pandemic on transplant recipients were unknown. Those transplanted before March 12th, 2020 had data censored and those transplanted during the black hole period did not have outcomes data metrics analyzed or reported. The reason for the censored black hole was uh, was because it was unclear how COVID-19 would affect transplant center metrics early on in the first wave of COVID infection. In this article, Subramanian Mittal hypothesized that this period of data censoring inadvertently creates inequalities in transplant center metrics across the country. The author suggests this discrepancy exists because certain regions were not affected to the same extent as the northeastern part of the country, for example, during this early wave of infection. In fact, the highest rates of infection and mortality were observed after the censored period and affected all UNOS regions. Similarly, the Delta variant also created a large wave of, uh, of infection between July and November of 2021 and had impacted regions differentially across the U.S. This differential impact of COVID-19 infection and outcomes remained through subsequent waves of infection. Although UNOS reported 2021 as a historic year in organ transplantation, the transplant rates and outcomes have been directly impacted by this pandemic. Those with lower socioeconomic status, less access to healthcare, 
those living in rural locations or from communities of color have significantly worse outcomes from COVID infection. Similarly, communities with low vaccination rates have worse survival. Subramanian et al. therefore conclude the potential introduction of bias into performance outcomes reported by SRTR that unintentionally favor certain geographies and populations. They believe the censored period corresponding to the first wave of infection propagates disparity for centers in regions outside of the Northeast as they were less impacted by the early wave of infection. They conclude the risk of bias was more than minimal by this censored period, a stance that is contrary to SRTR's prior reports. So Bromonium et al. therefore proposed two potential solutions to address the data censoring inequity. Number one is censoring all data during significant COVID infection waves from beginning of pandemic, irrespective of location or timing. And number two, collecting data, but halting all public reporting of data until full impact of each wave in the pandemic is more clearly understood. Once analyzed, include COVID-19 infection into risk calculation with respect to transplant-related death or outcomes. Subramanian et al. do recognize the inherent limitations of using public databases such as that of the SRTRs, but they encourage full transparency with data collection and analysis, as well as uh, they encourage consideration for public comment on this particular topic. Yeah, that was, um, thanks, Hirsch. I think a lot to sort of unpack, I think, in kind of a short sort of viewpoint. I was just actually at the uh, SRTR consensus conference um, in Minneapolis, and there was a lot of discussion about the difficulty and in, in risk adjusting and the risk adjustments in across organ transplantation and taking, you know, centers that are, you know, transplanting higher risk patients versus others not transplanting those patients. And, and you wonder where they, where they bring up in this viewpoint of number two, which is, um, the potential solution would be some some way to risk adjust for COVID-19 in terms of the adjusting for this in certain outcomes for, for centers with high rates compared to others and, and, and instead of just completely blacking it out. So I think that's sort of one way to, I think, potentially get at the, the inequity, but it, it's certainly a, a real challenge because this is, it's sort of a moving target. Um, it, it, and, and there's different variants and not all the COVID-19 we were seeing at the beginning is not the same as now because the infection rates are high, but the, you know, but we know how to handle it much better and treat people and treat people early with different therapies. So, but I, I really, I really liked sort of them bringing this up as an issue um, because it, it does create problems with data when you have this significant worldwide event that's continuing to today and i don't know how to get my arms around it and how to do how to adjust for it moving forward well i am on the srtr review committee and i'm actually the co-chair and unbeknownst to you all we just had a letter to the editor accepted in response to this paper so uh, i'll reiterate a couple of points i i agree with josh that you know the intention of this by the committee was not to penalize it was to support the transplant programs and maybe we should have just done a one-month carve-out. I think the notion was 90 days, and that's how it got propagated, because everything stopped. I mean, if you go back and remember, we, like, came to work, but we didn't do anything. We were, like, calling patients and freaking out, and, and OPOs were struggling. And, and in, in New York, for example, that's where everything really shut down. 
And so that carve out was not chosen, you know, because we knew things were going to happen elsewhere. We were trying to help New York. It was because everything kind of shut down and then we stopped it. And again, the notion of significant waves, I don't know what that means. I mean, we have a significant wave here right now, but you couldn't tell. And I think the therapeutics and the interventions in terms of vaccines have made an effect. And and I also think that that we as a community keep confusing metrics and you know, value a program has to patients. And so the SRTR test five meeting last week really was looking at what are patient value metrics and um, what are important. And so I think that as a community, the MPSC of UNOS recognizes the COVID struggles and those metrics are probably not being applied the way they might have, the triggers that we might have had. It's really up to them to decide. I mean, I can't speak for them, but I think the solutions of not reporting at all, it's not a good idea and not providing data is, is not the way to go. And there will be a, a thought publication or there there is one that is probably impressed that didn't come yet that one of the other fellows will probably want to talk about is, you know, including COVID deaths. And and I caution, too, that as a practitioner, when we're reviewing death, we have a lot of patients that had COVID, but we don't know if they died of COVID. And the reporting for COVID deaths is really quite, well, you're going to talk about COVID deaths next. But, you know, when, when senders report it, a family member says, well, my dad died. And did he have COVID? I don't know. He had a sore throat. We didn't test him or he tested negative. And so I, I think that if I could go back, I would have said no carve out. I would have said we all just deal wide open. And I can tell you that there's never going to be another car. As long as I'm on the co-chair, we're not carving any. We're not closing out any data. I mean, this has never happened before. And I have to say, we've spent so many meetings talking about the implications and and showing centers that their data, though affected, is not putting them at a risk, an ODE risk for, say, patient outcomes. So I did not realize that you were on the kind of the front line of this. And, and, oh, and, yes. yes. And I'm just glad yes. that Dr. Trivedi took this paper on. <laughs> well, thanks for the insight. Yeah, well, um, lessons learned, but I think it'd be helpful moving forward. All right, Hirsch, why don't we go ahead to your next paper by Massey et al.? Yes. Uh, so this paper is uh, named uh, Quantifying Excess Deaths Among Solid Organ Transplant Recipients in the COVID-19 Era. Um, and as we know, the total COVID-19 related mortality among transplant recipients is overall not well known. Prior reports are likely predicted to be underestimates. Um, in this study, Massey et al. studied about 400,000 individuals using the SRTR database to model expected mortality risk in the pre-COVID and the COVID eras. Patients were restricted to transplant dates between 2004 and 2015, and they quantified excess deaths as deaths above expected rates during the period of March 2020 and 2021. Interestingly, they found that kidney, liver, heart, and lung transplant recipients had 41, 27, 19, and 15 percent increase above expected death rates, uh, respectively, during the COVID-19 era. They did measure a metric which uh, called the observed over expected ratio, and they found it to be the highest among renal transplant recipients compared to other organ recipients. 
Interestingly, the observed over expected ratio was highest in Hispanic recipients and those above age 50, suggesting disparities that may have been that have already been well documented among these subgroup populations in the past. Observed deaths exceeded expected deaths each month each month during the study period, with the peaks in April 2020 and January 2021. Overall, the authors concluded that COVID-19 infection caused 5,000 excess deaths among transplant recipients during the 13-month period of study. This represents 1 in 75 transplant recipients, which comprises of a substantial proportion of all deaths among transplant recipients during this time, proving their elevated risk of mortality from COVID-19-related illness compared to the general population. The highest risk was found in Hispanics, those above age 50 years, and in males. Also interestingly, the temporal patterns of excess deaths match patterns of COVID-19 incidents in the U.S. suggesting COVID-19 as the likely cause of death. Understanding the impact of the pandemic on this vulnerable population has tremendous implications for the broader U.S. population. This analysis covers a longer time period of study and shows results that are consistent with prior reports, but is limited by the possibility of confounding and bias that is inherent to retrospective database studies. Regardless, the authors are to be commended for their work that points us in the right direction and informs our need for more aggressive measures to prevent COVID-19 infection in this vulnerable population. Great summary. Uh using uh, SRTR reported data. Did they happen to mention were these COVID related, were these all deaths due to COVID or other medical complications inherent in this patient population that may not have gotten the attention they needed due to COVID? So they did look at the temporal trends of uh, the mortality rates and they noticed them to be concordant with the incidence of COVID-19 infection at the time. So they, uh, they did uh, assume that uh, these were related directly to COVID-19 infection because of the concordance with COVID-19 incidents at the time. And it's also interesting that the, the rates of death were lowest in the early post-transplant period which I found sort of, you know, the opposite of my thinking where, you know, the highest level of immunosuppression is in that first few months. But uh, again, as you get further out, there's probably older, more comorbidities that may have made patients more likely to be, you know, once they're susceptible to uh, infection may increase the likelihood that they're not going to survive and have higher rates of uh, death. Yeah, and I wonder if there's a component of maybe behavioral patterns uh, that contributes to that as well. As uh, one gets further out from transplantation, they might have less follow-up compared to earlier time periods and might be going outside more often as a result. Sure, certainly. And certainly we didn't have opportunity for vaccine. And like that was March 2021. So most of us as practitioners didn't have access till December of 2020. And I think the rollout really, you know, even Though there have been limitations about vaccination in this population, that might have been certainly it's in the absence of those opportunities. And still we had no, I want to say the EUA for therapy was very limited uh, at that time in terms of like antibody therapy and, su and such. So I was wondering, I was sort of wanted to ask a question. Hirsch, I know that University of Washington multi-center uh, database that collected a lot of cases and had a lot of granular data. Obviously, this is not, you know, SRTR, where it's the whole transplant population, but that seemed to remember that showed some improvement in 
survival over the course of that year that uh, almost of the same time period that things were kind of bad early on but then improved towards the end of 2020 into 2021 and i think kind of most and that was before the vaccinations were rolled out so kind of the thinking was you know a little bit better treatments steroids um, remdesivir things like that that there actually was some improvements do you know if they do they see do they look at that um the the over over time the change in in deaths attributed to COVID 19. so uh i can't recall uh, uh, exactly off the top of my head but i believe that you know uh, as the the waves had uh lower incidence than the preceding of COVID infection compared to the preceding uh earlier waves of infection there were they did note that there were uh, uh the mortality rates were lower in those uh, latter waves of infection Mm -hmm. So it kind of ties to the incidence of it. So if there's more, right. more waves, more deaths. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that was very, that was the biggest point that I took from, from the study was that it, it is, it seems to be uh, concordant with the incidence of infection. Great. Okay. Well, thank you, Hirsch. I'm going to, we're going to move on to the next paper, which I'm going to present. Um, this is Vidya Fleetwood is the first author who is, at St. Louis University, but this, I assume, video was a fellow at University of Wisconsin because this is a, a University of Wisconsin single center study um, of pancreas transplants. And the focus here is on post-pancreatic transplant enteric leaks and the role of the salvage operation. Had to do, um, look up some of this about pancreas transplant and where the anastomoses are and um, had to educate myself a little bit better on the ease pancreas transplant in general, but also the, um, the complications. And it seems that uh, prior to the early 1980s or prior to the 1990s, the pancreas transplant was drained into the bladder. Whereas after the 1990s, um, this, there was, this has largely transitioned to enteric drainage, mainly uh, the main way pancreas uh, grafts are implanted are uh, there, there's a piece of duodenum attached to the pancreas and it's placed in the um, sort of proximal jejunum about 40 centimeters from the ligament of trites. And one of the complications that is kind of a dreaded complication is an enteric leak um, that can occur at the site of the anastomosis. And this can lead to peritonitis and sepsis. And this in general, the, the practice has been um, to uh, uh, presumably a long time ago, um, the practice had been to just do a total pancreatectomy. And I think that's still, um, given, given the severity of this complication, more and more, if this is caught early, there can be a salvage operation performed that can um, divert intestinal contents away from that leak and let it heal and then reconnect or take down that diversion. And so there's been some small studies that have looked at this and the Wisconsin group put together this single center retrospective review of adult uh, SPK uh, pancreas after transplant and pancreas alone performed over a 97 through 2018. They had they basically looked at their entire cohort of recipients who had a duodenal or anastomotic enteric leak. Uh, less than six months after transplant. And this was defined by uh, radiologically with the duodenal segment filling 
an extravasating oral contrast or the presence of drain bile, which shouldn't be there. And the, and the group that was the control were those without uh, leaks or fistulas where the, the uh, drain fluid was amylase without, without bilirubin elevated in the fluid. And so um, they basically just put together all of their cases and compared them to the controls, which are, were, were the vast majority of uh, their pancreas recipients. If you look at table one, 1,120 pancreas transplants had no leak where there were 33 that had a leak, which comes to about 3%, which is close to what is reported in the literature. And they wanted to look at what was done with these uh, patients who had a leak. Um, and nine of them underwent immediate pancreatectomy. And then 24 of them, this is on table two, had an attempted salvage with 12 being successful and 12 failing. So about a 50% success rate with salvage. Uh, and the success means that they survived and they um, had a functioning pancreas graft with that salvage procedure. And so that was, those were their numbers. So they actually had an increasing number of salvage attempts compared to pancreatectomies and, and these leak cases over the last uh, 20 years. They looked at some of the risk factors for developing a leak and clearly it, the donor age and the, the kidney donor profile index. So if it came uh, with a kidney, um, SPK, the kidney DR, uh, DRI, as well as the pancreas DRI, correlated with a higher risk of leak, pancreas cold ischemic time, as well as kidney cold ischemic time also. So if there's a longer, a higher risk donor and a longer cold ischemic time, very likely there's ischemia, the anastomosis and breakdown and leakage is, is what is occurring. Then they, um, so when they, and then when they plug this into a multivariate analysis, um, the hazard of having a, so they plugged in all of the variables, having a leak increased uh, 5% with every year of donor age and 10% with every hour of cold ischemic time, which clearly it kind of goes without saying, minimizing cold ischemic time in a pancreas transplant is really, really critical to lowering this complication, although it is a rare complication. When they looked at uh, the survival after uh, the salvage procedure, first of all, the pancreatectomies clearly all had graft failure, but the patients some um, had, had a good survival. Although um, if it was uh, with a kidney transplant, anyone who had a pancreatectomy or a salvage procedure where a pancreatectomy had to be performed, meaning a failed, um, a failed salvage procedure, they had worse kidney allograft uh, outcomes long-term. The numbers are small, but presumably this is just related to um, either worsening of diabetes with pancreatectomy long-term and affecting the kidney, or the kidney graft was just not a great graft, meaning the reason that they had this complication. And so what the authors, um, just again, this was a pretty large series. I think that's why it was published in AJT of a center that does uh, that did over a thousand pancreas transplants. The the message messages that I took from this is, of course, limiting cold ischemic time and and any uh, an early detection of this complication. Of course, this is a 
anytime there's leakage into the into the abdomen an early detection to be able to do a salvage procedure before there's an abscess or sepsis occurs is is critical here and i thought the the part about i'd like to maybe hear rises comment about the the spk the enteric leak decreases long-term kidney kidney survival and this effect was contingent on having a functioning pancreas and and again, they went back to the fact that not exactly sure why, but maybe graft quality of the kidney or or the um, or the effect of having going back on insulin and having uh, poorly controlled uh, insulin insulin dependent diabetes on the kidney allograft may be the factor here. One thing that they do mention is that again catching this early because if it's caught late, it, you actually may have a higher higher death rate with a salvage procedure than a than, mm. and a pancreatectomy than just doing pancreatectomy up front and so it's important to catch it early and if it's if it's late in the course it's probably best to just get the graft out um, rather than try to salvage because uh, that's again multiple operations can be problematic although only two patients died of their of their salvage cases so Small, you know, small number of cases. Uh, I think this is one of those where they had enough cases to be able to do an analysis of uh, the risk factors and outcomes. So I think it was a, a nice addition to the literature. Certainly something that can be helpful to the pancreas uh, transplant, pancreas transplant surgeons and providers um, have this information. So yeah, I'll stop there. If any comments. Well, certainly, um, this is an experienced center over a long period of time. And I think the detection of these things is the hardest. And again, having done a lot of pancreases when I was younger, both bladder and enteric and managing them, not doing them personally, it's challenging. And you get these people with abdominal pain and fever and you're doing CMVs. And I've only seen like one leak in my entire career. So I count myself really lucky. Again, you know, why would the kidney fail after a pancreatectomy? You point out a good confounder is the quality of the kidney itself, perhaps. You know, the other thing I wondered is these people are so sick and they're often got NGs in and they're not absorbing their meds. And so, and the numbers are small, but, you know, isn't an associate. I know from my own experience that you'd hold meds and then people would start cracking, start going up and, and, they may have subclinical rejection or end up having re- clinical rejection and maybe but it was late. It was late kidney graft, uh, which was interesting. If you look yeah. at it. Uh, and I just wonder if they yeah. developed DSA from some optimal yeah. suppression. I event. mean, certainly, you know, the two graphs together are more immunogenetic. So you immunogenic, not immunogenetic, but immunogenic. So you think with the pancreas out, oh, the kidney would be okay. It's not like a liver kidney where you say, oh, the liver's, you know, the pancreas is protecting mm-hmm. the kidney. It doesn't work that way. But that's the only thing I could potentially think of is that they have a lot of manipulation to misdepression and, and their recovery periods after these procedures may not be great and certainly interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we move on to your papers? All right. Well, I'll try to be speedy. So I'm going to do my first paper is going to be by Summer et al., the heart transplant across preformed donor-specific antibodies using perioperative desensitization. So I think um, many of the kidney folks listening know a lot about desensitization and other studies in transplant. And, you know, we're aware of heart data where your average one-year graft survival historically is about 73%. Again, historic all-comers. 
Um, but if there's a positive cross match and you still move forward, it's about 55%. And these results are even worse when you have children that have positive cross match uh, organs. There's a lot of difficulty in transplant uh, to wait for an actual hard cross match. They called it like a warm cross match. But what they mean is, you know, they, they, that this field relies a lot on virtual cross match. Some groups have tried to do pre-transplant desensitization and tried to treat patients that are sensitized and try to reduce DSA load and then get them better into, you know, a better situation in terms of getting a better organ or not having this positive cross match. But these perioperative approaches really have not been consistent. They haven't been, you know, well studied or effective. And there obviously is a timing issue because you don't know, I don't think you have as much predictability of when a patient's going to get transplanted. So this group, which is Heidelberg and Hanover Medical Centers, did a retrospective study using a more novel approach to what they call perioperative desensitization. And their focus was IL-6, IL-6 interleukin-6 being a pro-inflammatory cytokine. And we've talked in this forum about its role in T-cell mediated rejection, where um, if you uh, treat T-cell mediated rejection experimentally with this therapy, you can enhance Tregs. That was a, a Sindhu Chandran paper from UCSF. And it's obviously been a focus of antibody mediated rejection and, and a big trial going on by CSL bearing for chronic antibody-mediated rejection. And blocking IL-6 can prevent or, or slow memory B cells from converting into plasma cells, which is another theoretical reason, and it's also an anti-inflammatory. So this group looked at their data retrospectively from May 2017 to December 2020. They looked at sensitized recipients on the waiting list that had positive versatile cross-matches and received a donor organ and compared them to a group that was virtual cross-match negative, um, or did not receive tocilizumab. So the number of those others that might have gotten some, uh, I don't know the number of control patients that might have been desensitized in the previous past. And their their positive MFI was a greater than 1,000. And interestingly, they did standard cross matches at the time of transplant, but they used CDC cross match, which is um, cytotoxicity-based. It's augmented, but it's probably not as sensitive as we know, like a, fro- a flow cross match. Why they did that, that's just, I think, a style of the laboratory. It's not that they don't know how to do flow. That's just the way they do it. So in total, there's a, a cohort of about 117. They looked at 19 of whom had positive DSA by virtual and underwent desensitization. So they had a control group that is a very small treatment group and a very larger um, control group. And in figure one, they show you the treatment plan, which was like a big dose of tocilizumab right before the organ went in, and then uh, and plasmapheresis and IVIG and ATG before the heart went in, and then afterwards they finished their plasmapheresis and they finished their IVIG. Their IVIG, interestingly, was IgM enriched, which is something many of us don't do. They also gave a dose of rituximab. They followed up with some more IVIG at day 28, and they did protocol surveillance biopsies, which is sort of standard game in heart transplant. And so notably, I think just going to the results, I think what's of interest is, um, and they did do cross matches at the time of transplant, you know, the perioperative characteristics between the groups are very similar. The cold times were similar as shown in table one. Um, and they also measured some cytokines and um, in one of the figures, which is two, they show that IL-6 levels were quite high in the desensitization, perioperative desensitization. And I'll come back to that. I think that's an artifact 
because tocilizumab is anti-IL-6 receptor antibody and you can get a rebound increase in IL-6 expression. Um, it's not a neutralizing antibody to, to, to IL-6. So these patients went on to do unbelievably well compared to um, other control groups. Um, their one-year patient survival was almost 95%. There was a death due to sepsis. The survival was very similar to controls. I mean, this is significantly better than ISHLT data for of like 84% of the year and 74% for individuals that were retransplanted. They do do a number of studies afterwards. Four individuals became negative by 14 days. The remaining had low levels or persistent donor-specific antibody. And one of these individuals that had persistent antibody had a virtual positive cross-match, no, I mean, a virtual CDC cross-match. Not everybody had positive cross-matches by CDC. Again, why is that? It may be the sensitivity of the technique, but certainly the notion that these patients did better um, long-term with perioperative treatment is important. Uh, notably, in the control group, 79, 79 patients remain negative without DSA, and some developed de novo DSA over a three-year three follow-up. So why is this important? I think it shows that you have feasibility in an organ that you've got to get in quickly. You actually probably can treat and desensitize. And the outcomes were relatively safe. Their outcomes were actually probably better, even in their control group compared to registry data. And that the freedom from rejection, which we didn't talk about, was really significant and, and quite good. And there is at least another report that they compared the results to from 2019, where they only used IVIG and plasmapheresis perioperatively and showed that those that these results are superior, suggesting that it's not sufficient. And one, I think, and, and this was in comparison to eculizumab perioperatively from Cedar, a Cedars-Sinai heart transplant cohort, again, which had a higher uh, risk of infection. So again, it, it suggests that this tocilizumab, this combination may actually not only be feasible, but... Um, actually beneficial. Again, not a randomized control. One comment, a couple of comments are, you know, the the issue of the IL-6 high levels, I think, is just an artifact of the treatment and, and is not related to the fact that, you know, these highly sensitized patients are got higher IL-6 levels. They're not baseline for sure. And, you know, uh, identifying why do these patients have less infection? I mean, we typically in the in kidney world don't use IgM-enriched IVIG, I wonder if there's some relationship there because their level of uh, infections was really quite low. So, you know, sort of a tough strategy, but in a patient population that's challenging. And there clearly is an ongoing, I want to say it's a CTOT study out of MGH, maybe Jordan Madsen study where they're looking at anti-L6 postoperatively on a repetitive fashion to see if they can mitigate, you know, donor uh, DSA, HLA, DSA, and minimize uh, transplant vasculopathy. I was interested in, um, no, I mean, I think this is obviously retrospective and encouraging this kind of multifaceted protocol they use. But I was, I was, I hadn't really seen much about this IgM enriched um, immunoglobulin. Can you talk about that a little bit more? I'm just yeah, no, I mean, it's not something that, all, yeah, they mentioned it in their, in their methods. We used IgM enriched I, uh, IgGAM, which is penoglobulin available in Germany. And the dosing strategy is the same as we would do two grams per kilo in the divided dose fashion. But we typically here don't 
use that product. We just use sort of mm-hmm. standard. Uh, and I know that, and, and they gave rituximab. So we do measure, I mean, a lot of centers that are doing or treating with rotox are doing these desensitization strategies, including with rotox, will check IgM levels at some point and then maybe give additional IVIG. But the, this IgM enriched was new to me. I had not seen that mm. before. And I, I, you know, I'm not sure I have any other comment, but that's even if they had some that developed DSA, um, they noted they would give them an additional treatment with this uh, IgM-based I- IgG. I'm, I'm just wondering, I'm just thinking about the rationale. Is it that, you know, IgM is obviously, when I'm thinking about acute infections, those that's what goes up initially, you know, into clear in, infections. So I wonder if it, there's more potency of an IgM-enriched product than just you know, now, you know, they didn't mention that in terms of being a preventive or a treat, but as that as a rationale yeah. for the desensitization. It, but I may be wrong. I might have missed the detail. I do know that mm-hmm. they point to that as potentially a positive benefit from not having the level of infection that we typically see when you're giving ATG, plex, mm-hmm. triple therapy, because all these people were on triple triples afterwards. And, you know, and rituximab, and then you're sort of sitting there hoping in six months they don't end up with, you know, yeah, no, pneumonia like, and that kind of thing. I was, yeah, I'm like, boy, they really, uh, I mean, if we gave these to liver patients, we'd have like a 50% death rate, I think. <laughs> so you wonder about the, uh, the patients that, you know, just obviously selection bias and, you know, these are well, very selected heart transplant candidates that are probably in better shape than the average that we're able to tolerate this regimen, I would suspect. But I would gather, because especially because the IVIG is certainly a volume load, but I want to say also that, um, interestingly, when they went back and did their retrospective CDC cross-match, I was struck by the fact that there were, let me see, 19 virtual match uh, patients had both class one, class two, and not everybody ended up having a CDC-positive cross-match so in mixed into some of this data are people that are probably not, you know, they're sensitized to a point. So maybe some of the positive benefit is these patients don't go on to develop rejection antibody or cellular because at the time of transplant, their levels of, of donor-specific antibody are low, at least low enough to be negative in CDC. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's another thing that I thought was sort of interesting. But again, the feasibility of treating patients perioperatively to me is astounding. I mean... Yeah, yeah, that would be certainly, you know, something to think about in, in kidney world, because we typically don't do it that way. Cool. Well, thanks, Roz. And then I have gonna... one last paper, last and this is an interesting one um, by Eric Engels and colleagues on cancer risk and living donor. And I think the last maybe one of the last cancer risks and living kidney donor papers was done by Crystal Lentine in 2012, where she looked at insurance coverage and showed the overall incidence of cancer in donors was similar to in other insured subjects, but there was an increased frequency of prostate cancer. So unbeknownst to me, there is a thing called the transplant cancer match, which is a linkage of SRTR data with multiple central cancer registries. I think there's like 32 cancer registries. And so in this study, they took all living donors from 95 to 2017 that had to reside in these transplant registries and in the TCM, this, this, uh, that was a registry and that is linked to 32 other things. So if you weren't in one of the cancer 
If you're not in that catchment area where they have these registries, you weren't included. But regardless, this led to almost 85,000 uh, living donors. Um, and then they matched, they they did their own sort of surveillance epidemiology and end results analyses. But what makes this even more interesting is they went about making a comparison, not to the general population, but to individuals in this Advent, Adventist Health Study too, which is an eighth-wide study of like 90,000 uh, Seventh-day Adventists who don't smoke and don't drink and don't drink a lot of, and, and have sort of a low meat diet and aren't caffeinated like some of us are. And they had linkage of that, that big cohort study to a cancer cohort. So they were able to first look at the incidence overall in these living donors and then compare it to a very healthy patient population, individuals. They excluded a bunch of people, but it, essentially people with you know, sort of, a you know, thinking about their health, being careful about their overall outcomes. And so I would say that the overall donor cohort was about 60% female, not unexpected. Women tend to be more commonly living donors. 63% were living related. The average age was about 41, which seems kind of young, mostly white, 68%, normal, pretty reasonable BMI, 24% were prior smokers, and there was no hep D or C. It was very infrequent. It's interesting in, the, in their baseline analysis, they noted that there were 390 donors that actually had cancer, a prevalent cancer at the time of their donor evaluation. And that was about a, an instance of about five in a thousand. And this was mostly colorectal cancers, melanomas, and kidney cancers, including 13 that were diagnosed at the time of donor evaluation, which I thought was interesting. But overall, when they looked at the 10-year follow-up, they identified 2,830 incident cancers, which comes out to um, a 21% lower risk overall to the general population of cancer or SEER of 0.79. And um, again, they did some unadjusted and then some adjusted risk analyses. And again, when they looked at the initial first five to seven years, uh, the deficits were quite low. They were much lower than even the Adventist population. But at seven years in their in their adjusted analysis, they did see a signal of a higher rate of colorectal cancer with a ratio of about 1.38 compared to the other cohort. I'm sorry, 2.7 for colorectal and 2.97 for kidney. Again, seven years out mean after. And they tried to look at risk factors for why this was happening when these patients had very low risk out to that point. And these individuals tended to be older they tended to be further out from their donation. The donors, these individuals particularly, didn't necessarily have a history of colon and, and kidney cancer, although there were a couple that did. And so you'd start to say to yourself, well, the cancer risk is quite low in this patient population, except as you get further out. And that's sort of the story of live kidney donation, that everything looks good. And then you can't, it's hard to know at 10 years, is someone going to get morbidly obese? Are they going to become diabetic? How do you, you know, how do you incur risk in this patient population? And I think that the authors are very measured in, in their comments. They, you know, recommend the standard cancer screening for those that are prevalent. So mammograms at the right age, you know, you're doing all this kidney screening anyway with ultrasound and CT anyway. Um, and then if you need a colonoscopy, you should get a colonoscopy and not overlook those screenings. They don't, they didn't see an increased risk of prostate and they don't recommend prostate screening per se, but you know, why is this happening? And so there was actually an accompanying editorial about 
by Adnan Sharif about like, are there mechanisms of why this could be happening? And was this related to the inflammation that occurs that these patients develop some chronic kidney disease post and, and sort of have low level CKD? And maybe that's why, but there's clearly, you know, issues of detection bias, reverse causation, confounding bias. It's hard to really know. I think the most important thing is that you have to tell, you know, donors, not patients, they're donors, but to talk to living donors and, and remind them that, you know, you may not see me in 10 years, but when you turn 50, you know, or if you turn 40 and there's prevalence of colon cancer, don't blow this off because this study would indicate that there is a finite increased risk uh, in patient populations over long periods of time, even though these people are heavily screened to be healthy which is the overall risk of cancer is low in them. Do you think that this will have any negative impact at all on, on donors? No, I, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that the levels were so low. And again, what I found the most striking was the fact that people had cancer and they were still donating. And that, to me, struck me as really very strong. I, it made me, this. a lot of this data was reassuring, like skin cancers and some of the other more common cancers like breast and stuff were in high, weren't even at increased risk. And that made me sort of feel better. But, you know, trying to tie why giving a kidney away increases your risk of colorectal is a little hard for me to understand. And it's not early. It's, you know, late, you know, seven or more years afterwards. Mm, yeah, sort of leaves a little bit more questions than answers. And <laughs> In some ways. I mean, I think that the, the editorial was really balanced in the fact that we shouldn't be alarmists and running out and telling patients don't donate because you could get yeah. cancer. I mean, it's like the old coffee pancreas cancer study that we used to like say, oh, my God, you know, I mean, some of this, there is some bias uh, potentially in in the study, even though it was a very large patient population and it probably needs sitting down. It might come up in your evaluation. I mean, I, my evaluation is always everything's fine today, but 10, 15, 20 years, like, you know, look at your father, look what he looks like, you know, he's you in 30 years. Wow. Or 40 years. And, and, you know, that's a joke. I, there's another joke I could tell you about that, but, but, but again, I say, Hey, this is your peers. This is your genetic group. And this is what you're going to look like. Look at your dad or look at your mom. And, and, you know, there's a lot. I don't look like my mother. Well, I think I look and act like my mother now more than I realize. And and your health consequences are a lot of it is genetic. Yeah, it's socioeconomic, genetic, environmental. But you have to just be aware and you have to pay attention to your, you know, like I don't I know I do a family history. But now I think that if someone says, hey, my mom had colon cancer or breast cancer, I'll be much more sensitized to remind them about the follow up periods. Sure. Okay, great. Well, I think we'll end it there. A great discussion for all of these papers. Thank you, Hirsch. Thank you, Roz. And we will see you in September for the next uh, podcast. Take care, everybody. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.